Well, good morning again. Good singing. That was great this morning. Well, I invite you to take your Bibles or devices or reach in front of you there uh, in the rack there and grab one of those Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And if you grab one of those Bibles in front of you, you'll find it on page 785. Well, we live in a world inundated by advertising, don't we? I wonder how many commercials we've already <clears throat> taken in today, sometimes knowingly and sometimes kind of not even knowing what's going on. But, but we are just uh, com completely bombarded with promises that are selling us the good life. The good life. That's the title of our new sermon series in the Sermon on the Mount. What is the good life? Everybody has an opinion on what the good life is. What's the good life? Well, how about this? Maybe it's the American dream, all right? The American dream. You know, how many products can you get in one picture? I, 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 thought, it, I thought at first this guy was playing a guitar, but it's not. It's an outboard motor, okay? <laughs> but, you know, this is, this is one idea of the good life, you know? Work hard, and then you can buy all these material things. That's the good life. That's kind of the American dream. Now, there's something else going on right now, which I don't completely understand. Uh, one, some people have titled, the, titled it the Great Resignation, which kind of seems like an, like an opposite view of things. And, and that is that a lot of people are leaving their jobs, maybe for various reasons, maybe because uh, they've enjoyed working at home and they want to continue doing that. Or maybe because they say, you know what, it's not all about working really hard and buying stuff. It's about doing what you enjoy doing. And so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go find what I enjoy doing. All right? That's another view of the good life. There's also uh, people who are really focused kind of on themselves and, and the inward kind of health. Uh, you know, be in touch with yourself and, and live in the moment. And uh, <sighs> breathing is good. I recommend it. But uh, the idea there is kind of all on one's uh, self-actualization. And that's the good life is to reach your potential and feel good, okay? That's one idea of the good life. Um, and then there's maybe a one that probably I'm, I'm tempted to think about, and that is, you know, Mayberry. That's the good life. Bring back Aunt B, all right? And then everything will be okay. If we could just go back to Mayberry, the good old days, that was the good life. If we could just get back to that life, that would be the good life, the Mayberry life. Now, come on, guys. We kind of live almost in, in Mayberry still here in our lake, so we, we have uh, a little bit of good life that way. Um, and then there's other people who just want to get away from it all, you know, and it's like bring back Bear Grylls, all right? We want to we go off the grid, and we want to detach ourselves from everything uh, that is worldly in this world and just live off of nature. So a lot of people have a lot of different ideas about what the good life is. But what does Jesus say? What is the good life according to Jesus? Well, he says that the good life is the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom is Christ's central message. And certainly in the Gospel of Matthew, that's going to be highlighted that Jesus is the king. And that his kingdom has come near. It is at hand. The good life that God offers us uh, is in the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven. Well, that begs the question then, what is the kingdom of heaven? 
what is it that Jesus was proclaiming or announcing when he said that the kingdom was at hand, that the kingdom had come near? We've talked a bit about this already, but let's, let's keep reminding ourselves because the kingdom can sometimes be a little bit of a difficult concept to grasp. So here's one way to think about it. It's the power of God in Christ to redeem people from their sin, to redeem people from living under the dominion of sin, Satan, and death to redeem people from their sin, to live under the rule of God. Remember, turn, turn and follow Jesus, and that means to live under his rule. He is the king, and to live under his rule is to live in the kingdom of heaven. It's God's personal rule or reign over his creation, including his people. And so the good life is related to the kingdom of heaven, living under the rule of Jesus under his rule, his reign. Which begs another question, and that is, who or what is ruling your life? Under what rule do you actually really live? Who or what is calling the shots? I'm letting you think about that. <laughs> I don't often let you think. Who, who or what rules my life? Really, really, what's calling the shots? Well, if it's anything or anyone other than Jesus and the good life you're living is temporary at best and probably more an illusion than reality. Jesus came to, to help us turn away from all the counterfeit kings and kingdoms and to turn and place ourselves by his grace and by his invitation under his rule, which leads to life, the good life. So what does the good life look like? Then say, so, okay, fine, great. So turn from counterfeit kingdoms to the kingdom of heaven and live under the rule of Jesus. What does that look like? Well, that is exactly what the Sermon on the Mount is about. Jesus is describing in this probably most famous sermon ever what kingdom life looks like, what it looks like to live under the rule of Jesus. <clears throat> Take your Bibles there and uh, we'll just jump right in in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds... And we, we kind of read about the crowds in chapter 4. He went up on a mountainside. Thus, the Sermon on the Mount. All right, he went up on a mountainside there by the Lake of Galilee, overseeing the Lake of Galilee, and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So who's he talking to? He's, who's them? All right, he's talking most directly to his disciples, in other words, his followers, people who have made that choice to turn from the counterfeit kingdoms and to live under the rule of Christ, to follow him as king and lord. But, but there are hundreds of others listening in. Have you ever done this before? Have you ever had a conversation with someone, but you knew someone else was listening in? 
and, and you were kind of conscious of both audiences at the same time. And so what, you were speaking directly to someone, but you're very well aware that others were listening, and, and that message was for the, all the audiences. But Jesus is directly talking to the disciples who are his followers. Now, believe it or not, uh, although Christians have great uh, unity in seeing this as an, uh, an incredible message, the Sermon on the Mount, they don't all agree about who it's for, who the actual aud intended audience is. N not in the original context, but today. Who, who's this message for? Got to clear that up before we uh, jump too far in. Some Christians argue that this message isn't for us today, that it is too much Old Testament law-like and not New Testament grace enough. In fact, uh, Jesus clearly raises the bar on things and that, that seems impossible and therefore they say that it can't be for today. But it is not Old Testament law. Although Jesus' original audience, they were Jews uh, in an Old Testament context, we are reading this sermon out of the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew was writing out of a New Testament context, out of a church context, and his primary audience was the church. And so he was writing this to the church. If this was Old Testament and it had nothing to do with the church, Matthew, it is long. It takes up chapters. It's, it's the, the longest um, sermon in Matthew, which has several sermons in it. Uh, Matthew wouldn't have put it in there if it hadn't been for us today. This is what John MacArthur wrote, um, that uh, kind of pointing to the fact that really Jesus isn't raising the bar on the law so much as he is taking our perspective from external things and pushing it down internally into heart things, that, that he wants to look at the heart. So he's taking a look at the heart. This is what John MacArthur writes. The thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is that the message and work of the king are first and most importantly internal and not external and spiritual and moral rather than physical and political. Remember that the Jews were expecting a Messiah, Savior, King who's going to deliver them politically and socially, externally. And, and Jesus is making very clear here that the salvation that he's bringing is internal, it's spiritual, it is a moral change of heart. His concern is for what men are, because what they are determines what they do. In other words, it's all about the heart. It's about the heart and the soul. Where's your heart at? What's your heart like? And we just, when we really uh, just look at that, honestly, we realize that we all need heart change. We all need to have a changed heart, and Jesus is the only one who can actually transform our hearts. Only Jesus can change hearts. So to the casual reader, this might seem uh, difficult. Uh, these, this Sermon on the Mount ki kind of is impossibly difficult and therefore defeating uh, because the standard that it sets is so high. However, the thrust of the Sermon on the Mount is that we need Jesus to change our hearts. We need Jesus to change our hearts from the inside out. We need transform from the inside out. So apart from forgiveness, regeneration, that, that is new life in Christ that's taking part in the nature of Jesus and experiencing the indwelling of the Spirit, we, there's no way we can live the good life. 
The good life is totally impossible apart from Jesus Christ. Now that shouldn't discourage us. What should it do? It shouldn't discourage us. It should push us to Jesus in absolute dependence. We need you, Jesus, to do for us what we can't do for ourselves. So it's, it's, not, it's not OT law. It's something completely different. It's a look at our hearts. It's a look at the heart and a recognition that Jesus is the only one that can change our hearts. So some people say, some people say it's not for today because it belongs to the Old Testament times. Some people say it's not for today because it belongs to a future time. It belongs to the millennium. It belongs to the thousand-year rule of Christ on the earth. And so Jesus is describing um, life under the rule of Christ in the kingdom, but it's the, it's the thousand-year reign and rule of Christ on this earth in the millennium. Well, I don't—in I don't, and, and our past, we've had that thought sometimes. In our circles, we've, we've um, toyed with that thought, but I, that just can't be right. And the reason why it can't be right is because some of the things that Jesus addresses in this sermon, they will not, they will not take place in the millennium. Will followers of Christ be persecuted in the millennium? No, not at all. Um, who, who is going to be praying for God's will on earth as it is in heaven in the millennium? Nobody, because his will is being done on earth as it is in heaven. All right? No one's going to be praying that prayer. Who will need to seek first the kingdom of God? You won't need to seek it. You're living in it. <laughs> Right in the fullness of it. And so, so much of what is taught in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, the, the ethic, the moral, the, the values of the Sermon on the Mount certainly will be on full display in the millennium. Absolutely. They'll be lived out in their totality. Wonderful. And in that way, the Sermon on the Mount has something to do with the millennium. But it, it is for today. I just want to say that clearly, that the Sermon on the Mount is intended for today. Jesus' arrival brings something new into the history of the world, into the picture. The Messiah has come. His eternal kingdom it has, is, has invaded the kingdoms of this world and the kingdom of Satan. And he's come, he's come here to offer us entrance into life under his rule. Life under his rule. Now, today, in the already, not yet so this sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, which we're going to be looking at over the next several weeks, is a definition of the good life now under his rule. Now, I want you to note something here, again, before we dive in too deeply, is that the Sermon on the Mount is not offering us kind of qualifications for getting into the kingdom of Christ. What it is demonstrating is the qualities of people who already belong to the kingdom of Christ, who live under the rule of Christ. In other words, it's not trying to create a bunch of steps that we have to go through in order to earn or merit inclusion in the kingdom of Christ. What it simply is talking about is, is he, here is how people who belong to Jesus and belong to this kingdom, here's how, they, here, how their hearts are. Here's what motivates their behavior uh, from the inside out. This is what Leon Morris wrote. If we take the Sermon on the Mount seriously, we realize that we cannot attain it, <clears throat> excuse me, attain it, and therefore cannot merit salvation. It is the end of the way of the law and drives us to seek salvation in Christ. 
But when we receive this salvation as God's free gift, the sermon shows us how we should live in the service of our gracious God and King. It shows us what life is like in the kingdom of God. And it's so opposite to the kind of the conventional religious wisdom of the day as um, evidenced by the Pharisees who really thought that they could earn through their own righteousness, self-righteousness, entrance into the kingdom. And uh, the Sermon on the Mount is just going to obliterate and destroy that kind of self-righteous thinking. You can't. It's something that you receive, not something that you earn, but it will change you from the heart out. It points to the necessity of Jesus, again, doing for us what we can't do for ourselves. So then, who gets in on this? Who gets in on the good life? Who gets in on the good life? <clears throat> you know, if the Pharisees couldn't get in, who could? When Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, your righteousness better be uh, surpassed that of the Pharisees, you could hear a gulp from the whole audience. What? Well, who then can get in? Who can get in on the good life? Well, it's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. In other words, it's not who you would expect can get in. Now, let's just remember the kinds of people who are coming to Jesus. In chapter 4, you get a description of the, the people that are pressing in, that are coming to Jesus, the crowds that are finding their way to Jesus. And we read about the sick and the diseased, the suffering, the paralyzed, the epileptics, the demon-possessed. Wow. That is a motley crew. By the way, that last one, that's really significant because it's going to be a major theme in Matthew that Christ's kingdom is going to come in to destroy Satan's rule and Satan's kingdom. And there's conflict there. And we're all reading Matthew together. And so this week we read in chapter 12, uh, the Pharisees claiming that Jesus did his miracles in the power of Satan. And Jesus says, well, that's kind of ridiculous if you think about it. Uh, a house divided uh, is destroyed. And then Jesus talks about the fact that in order to um, break into the house of a strong man and plunder him of his possessions, you first need to tie up the strong man. Right? And Jesus is saying, the reason why I can heal people and I can deliver them and I can free them is because I'm more powerful than the strong man, Satan, and I can tie him up. I'm, I'm defeating him. And so you have even the demon-possessed coming and being freed and delivered from oppression under Satan. So this isn't the, uh, the, the uh, healthy elite although certainly the Pharisees and the Sadducees also mixed into the crowd, but the majority of the crowd were average people and also people with great suffering who were coming to Jesus for deliverance. It was kind of like a hospital and a psychiatric ward pressing in on Jesus all the time. But that's not all. Let's look at the beginning here of the Sermon on the Mount what we call the Beatitudes, and see what kind of people, what kind of people, because Jesus sees right into hearts, and, and he's looking around him. He, what, what, what's the heart um, condition of those? And of course, he's talking directly to his disciples, but the people around him. Now, why do we talk about Beatitudes? These are the Beatitudes. Well, that's, that comes from a Latin word, uh, meaning a condition of blessedness or of supreme happiness. 
And so each of these beatitudes, all right, starts with that word blessed or blessed. Um, <clears throat> but you know what? Latin isn't the original language of the text. <laughs> the original language is Greek. And so the Greek word that we translated, what we translate as blessed, it actually means to be approved of or favored by God, to have the favor of God. And in that sense, of course, there's a happiness about it. To be approved of by God, to be favored, to have the favor of God uh, gives one a, a deep sense of contentment and happiness. So blessed is your state, your condition, not your circumstances, not your feelings of happiness, but it's your, it's your condition, it's your state because God approves of you. And there's great blessing in that. It's a deep supernatural experience of contentedness based on the fact that one's life is right with God. You know, we don't sing blessed circumstances. What are we seeing? Blessed what? Blessed assurance. Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. Heir of salvation, purchase of God, born of his spirit, washed in his blood. That's, that's what brings happiness is this. It's about our relationship, a restored, renewed uh, confidence in relationship with God because of what Jesus did, right? That's, that's the blessedness that we're talking about here. When we just pursue happiness, it usually doesn't work out. Someone just quoted to me recently uh, that 87% of Gen Zers feel sad and can't seem to kick it. Well, why is that? I don't know all the answers, but maybe there's this kind of demand to push for happiness, expectation of kind of this feelings of happiness. But what we're looking at here is a, a push deeper into a state, a condition, a position in relationship to God, not about circumstances. All right. <clears throat> well, let's take a look. Who is blessed or approved in God's sight? Who's blessed or approved in God's sight? Who gets in on the kingdom? Let's read chapter 5 and the Beatitudes, starting with verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So when Jesus announced that the, the kingdom was near, uh, what he meant was that the kingdom was accessible. 
The rule of God was available in the person of Jesus, not just to some elites, not to the, the spiritual holier than thou group, but to the mass of raw humanity that was pressing in on him with their desperate needs, their cries for help. Now, I'm gonna go through these quickly again, the, these different kinds of hearts really. And which one, kind of as we go through, think about which one resonates with you. Does any, do any of these resonate in your heart? You know, all of a sudden I, f I feel that one in my heart. <laughs> that, that is my heart. So we're, we'll take a look at them and we'll start with the needy. The needy. The needy are those who acknowledge their absolute spiritual bankruptcy, that they have nothing within themselves to commend them to God. So that attitude, there's nothing in me that commends me to God. God approves of that. God approves of that attitude. And that's certainly the opposite of the attitudes of the Pharisees. They thought, hey, I'm pretty good. I'm pretty good. I, I have a claim on heaven because of my choices and my righteousness. But that it's exa exactly the opposite is what Jesus approves, what God approves of. We're going to see later in Matthew that there's another list, not beatitudes, but of woes. Woe. And these woes are to the Pharisees for their self-righteousness. These, these are the blessings that come that, that are quite opposite of the Pharisaical way of uh, thinking. Those who depend on God's grace for salvation are blessed. Why are they blessed? They're blessed because they will be filled with his sufficiency. That's good news. That is good news. That's God's grace. It's good news because the king has come and he's standing right in front of them, talking to them. That's the needy. What about the sad? Who are the sad? Those who mourn. Those are the people who are grieved by their own sin and by the sin of the world. They weep. They cry because of their own brokenness and because of the brokenness they see around them in the world. That's not, that doesn't feel like a happy thing, but God approves of that attitude. He approves of that frame of heart, if you will. Those who repent are blessed because they find forgiveness and as a result are comforted by the Holy Spirit, by the very presence of God in their lives. That's good news. That's God's grace. And it's good news because the king who can bring forgiveness is standing right in front of them, looking at them. What about the next one? The underdogs. That's the meek. Those are the ones who don't demand and force their way, but who are gentle and self-controlled. Power under control. Meekness isn't weakness, it's power under control. Now, when I, think of, when I think of people, who would be some examples of this, two people come to mind. One is Tony Dungy. I miss Tony Dungy. Uh, and t Tony D Dungy won a Super Bowl without ever raising his voice, without ever getting angry, uh, blustering and, and all that. He was, he was power under control. Another person who I think of, and I think of it because t t tomorrow we celebrate him, and that is Martin Luther King, as, as someone who was power under control. And um, I didn't ask permission, but I'm going to share a couple thoughts that uh, John T. Van shared in chapel just this week with Grace College, thinking about Martin Luther King. 
While he died in violence, he was committed to nonviolence. Today, as then, we see those of all political persuasions who do not share that commitment. On the right and the left are people who uh, use violence, force to try to get their way. Our own heritage of Karis churches, that's our group of churches, has a root of exceptional commitment to Jesus's pattern and teaching of nonviolence. I urge us all to share Dr. King's commitment, his biblical commitment to nonviolence. Again, that's not weakness, all right? That's, that's power under control, the control of the Holy Spirit. Our hearts and minds governed by the Holy Spirit. But I have to read you one other thing that John wrote because I think it's so valuable and appropriate. Martin Luther King had a focus on justice. Evangelicals, including me in his day, were over-focused on righteousness and neglectful of justice. Today, it seems to be just the opposite. Today, it is common to over-focus on justice and neglect righteousness. We are capable... Again, because of the spirit who lives in us and because of the word of God that's been revealed to us, we are capable of holding those two values, righteousness and justice, in balance without resorting to extremes. Let's pursue that balance together. Amen? That's the, that's, but you know what? You don't always get uh, rewards here on earth for doing that. <laughs> Probably you get pain and suffering and rejection and misunderstanding, but it's okay because the people that have this attitude, they will be blessed. In what way? The meek and gentle are blessed because they will end up on top, inheriting, inhabiting everything, Christ's kingdom. And that's, it shows you the upside down nature of the kingdom is so counterintuitive. Okay, you wouldn't expect that the meek end up on top. But in Christ's kingdom, that's the way it works. Under his rule, that's the way it works. So we better not go with conventional wisdom and even our first impulse or thought, we better look hard at Jesus Christ and say, under his rule, what does life look like? Well, we better keep going here. We got a few more to go. The hungry, those are the ones who desperately desire to be like God and do what is right. They have a holy discontent with their half-heartedness. And if one resonates with me, it's this one. It's this one. Ah. Oh. I, I am by nature, and there's a lot of good to it, but I am by nature a contented person. But it has a downside. And sometimes I am completely discontent with my contentedness. <laughs> because life's about more than just being nice. I, wanna, I want the Holy Spirit to govern my thoughts and my heart and to, and to push me to be a person who's actually a part of justice and righteousness in this world, starting with my heart. Oh, I'm hungry for that. The hungry are blessed because their longing is freely and fully satisfied in Christ and the Holy Spirit empowers them to live right. That's God's grace. It's the Holy Spirit that allows you to make progress in that direction. And of course, Jesus is absolutely the focus here because Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the water of life. All of you who are thirsty, all of you who are hungry, come to me. If you're hungry, there's an answer, and it's Jesus. And he says, come to me. And that's how the whole Bible ends, by the way, in Revelation, is come, come, drink. Drink of the water of life. 
There's the forgivers, the forgivers, that's the merciful. The forgivers are those whose hearts are governed by active compassion. God approves of this kind of attitude, this heart. But forgiveness hurts, doesn't it? It costs, it's not always reciprocated. In fact, often it's not reciprocated. How are they blessed? Well, with the measure you use, it'll be used on you. God forgives forgivers. God forgives forgivers. And you, we run into stuff in life all the time, and we say, it's not fair, it's not fair. You're right, it's not fair. It's not fair. By the way, who told you it was going to be fair? <laughs> all right. It's not fair. What do you want from God? What do you want? The question isn't whether it should be fair or not. It's what do you want from God? Do you want God to be fair with you or to give you grace? I know which one I want. I don't want fairness all of a sudden. <laughs> I want grace. And if I want grace, then I will be gracious towards other. The undivided heart, all right? The undivided heart, that's those with integrity of single-minded devotion to God in inner purity and outward actions towards others. It all matches up. They're going to be blessed uh, because they're going to get what they desire. That's to know God directly and enter into his joy. How about the reconcilers? Those are the peacemakers. Those uh, are the ones who wage peace by actively overcoming evil with good. They wage peace, not war. They wage peace. We could use peacemakers today. How desperately we need peacemakers in our polarized world. Who are the peacemakers? Please stand up. Again, you get abuse. It's, it's not that the circumstances for peacemakers are easy. Their circumstances in life can be rough, but they're blessed because the Father will claim them as his own because they reflect his heart as a peacemaker. Finally, the harassed, those who are persecuted. Obviously, blessing isn't about circumstances because the circumstances for these who are ridiculed and reviled because of their commitment to Jesus and his cause, that's no fun. That is hard, but they're blessed. How can they be blessed? They're blessed because they will receive from God everything they long for. They'll spend eternity in his kingdom of peace, righteousness, and justice. Now, I just want you to, I, I went through fast. Okay, I went through super fast. Why did I go through so fast through the Beatitudes? Well, there were certain time constraints. But uh, I just want to tell you that we, the, by the way, these Beatitudes, you know, they're pithy little statements. And we just dipped our toe into the little, what appears to be a puddle. These little Beatitudes each appear to be a little puddle. But once you step in, you realize you just jumped into an ocean of truth. So life groups are going to be looking at a nine part video series on the Beatitudes that we have put together starting this next week. And there will be two adult Bible fellowships starting next week that will be looking at each of these Beatitudes. I will be leading one at nine o'clock up in 103 and uh, people seeking Christ will uh, be looking at the Beatitudes starting next Sunday uh, down in the fellowship hall starting at 1030. So if you, if you are not a part of a life group and you don't currently go to an adult Bible fellowship, we're offering, hey, let's, let's take 
take a good deep look at these Beatitudes. And we're starting uh, next Sunday at 9 o'clock, 103, and 10.30 down in the Fellowship Hall to take a deeper look at these things. There's much more that could be said. Jesus calls all these people blessed, not because they had earned the kingdom of heaven through their spiritual merit, but rather because the rule of heaven had moved redemptively upon them in the person and grace of Jesus Christ, the king. Jesus had opened the kingdom of heaven to all who would come to him as the king. In Jesus, the kingdom was near, at hand, available, accessible, especially to those who are disillusioned with life, who are disappointed in the world, who are broken and hurting and who are longing for something better. Is that you? The kingdom of heaven is available and accessible to you. To such people, the Beatitudes give hope and an invitation. You may think you're far away from the kingdom of heaven, but you're not. You're closer than you think if you will submit. If you'll submit, if you'll surrender to the king. It's not um, submission when I like it. It's not submission when it's convenient. It's not submission when it doesn't cost me anything. It's not submission when the world accepts it. It's submission, complete and perfect. It's his rule over every part of your life all the time, no matter the cost. And the kingdom of heaven is only one surrender away, one surrender away. We're gonna sing it together. The good life is one surrender away, uh, that blessed assurance. And uh, as we sing together, blessed assurance, we think about the blessedness comes not from achieving something, but from surrendering ourselves. And whether it's the first time or the thousandth time, I call us all, including myself, as we stand and sing to surrender again our hearts to